Uh, it's a communication breakdown. You say one thing, I hear another thing. Uh, we have heard things uh, time and time again and just figure that must be true. Right? We, we've heard it before. We've heard it so many times. But is it? And when it concerns the way that God speaks to us, it's, it's very important for us to see and hear God consistently. Today, we're going to continue to examine uh, mixed messages and together be about removing confusion. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, he wrote, Scripture is not an, the answer book to all of our problems, but a doorway into the world of God's mystery. And, and one of the mysteries of this life is that God isn't interested in solving all of our problems in the ways we think they should be solved. And that can be somewhat disappointing for those of us who, just like the instant, the, the, the black and white solutions, turn to the Bible, look up the right verse, and there you go, just do that. Jesus reminds us repeatedly that we are to stay in step with the Spirit to stay connected to the Holy Spirit. And that is how we are to live and to move and have our being. Dependence, partnership, being linked, being connected. We stay connected so that we do not stray into just following our personal biases or things that we've heard with proof-texted Bible verses. So remember, as we go forward in the aroma and in the appearance of Jesus, that's our path. Not just outward smiles, but inward peace. Aroma and appearance of Jesus. So Jesus' harshest words in the Gospels were consistently aimed at religious leaders, people like me, who focused on everyone's exterior behavior, but never looked on the interior of their own hearts and the systems of hurt that they perpetuated. Today we're going to take a closer look at the mixed messages in and around divorce. What does God love? What is He in favor of? What does He require of you? Micah, the prophet Micah, gave us a great summary of this. Part of the aroma, eight. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Your heart, not just your sacrifices, the quality of your relationships. How do you treat the others that God has placed about you? How do you treat those that God loves who are in your path? Walk humbly with. Stay connected to. Stay in right relationship with your God. So lately, in uh, contrast, it has become very popular to drop some truth bombs, right? There's no time for subtlety in communication. I just got to say it. It's sound bites. It's hot takes. Say it loud. Say it argumentatively, just stir it up. Controversy. Get some engagement. Take a stand. Point the finger. It's completely clear. The Bible clearly teaches. 
Statements taken out of context. It was only half a thought, but we don't have time for the whole thing, so just take this part. That's the world that we live in. And it's difficult, especially when you come to something like divorce and marriage vows and covenants and who is breaking marriage vows, who is casting aside the covenant. So divorce is a law issue, and the legalness of it shows up in the Old Covenant. There's a legal process to do this, okay? Instead of protecting people, that process became a way to harm people legally. Many people don't leave churches because of the theology that the leadership holds, but because of the way the leadership holds that theology. How we believe is just as important as what we believe. And in many ways, how we believe reveals what we believe. There is part of the mixed message. So let's try and clear up some of that confusion. Divorce is usually a them problem. It's not a me problem. It's always easier to point to the over there than it is to evaluate the right here. Divorce is a very real problem in our society. It damages and it hurts, and it hurts in rings of relationship. There's no doubt about that, and it is far too common. Is there anyone here today who has been divorced or has had a close family member or a friend who has been divorced? Is there anyone here? We're, we're all in the same boat here, Okay? Divorce is a whole big thing, but, but it's also not one of the things that I heard directly spoken of when I have been in churches. It's spoken of in passing, it's mentioned, it's implied, but divorce in my church experience, maybe yours is different, has never really been spoken about. We're kind of ashamed about it. We don't know what to say. We avert our eyes. But that doesn't, that doesn't help us live, right? It doesn't help us live in the world that we actually live in. And I want to help. Do you want to help? I, I, I hope that's your, your desire. That, that's why I want to talk about this together. We are all familiar with divorce. It has touched all of our lives. We all know people involved in and hurt by divorce. When I was growing up, I just heard that divorce was wrong. We, we don't need to talk about it any more than that. It's, it's wrong. I don't think that was helpful. It, it didn't teach me how to have the appearance and the aroma of Christ in my everyday life. And I came across this divorce stuff like all the time, and I didn't know how to be with people. Divorce is a problem, sure. But it's the things that bring up divorce that are the real problems. Abuse, mistreatment, abandonment, selfishness, broken relationships. These are things that God hates. I hate paperwork, right? I hate legal paperwork even more. But God does not hate paperwork. He hates covenant breaking.
Divorce breaks covenants, not because of legal paperwork that somebody files, but because of what has already happened to bring about the desire to file legal paperwork. Protection for the vulnerable. Okay? In our 21st century, did you know you're in the 21st century? Man, you're amazing. In our 21st century worldview, we, ha- we, we see the Old Testament law, and it's not what we think. So maybe on our first reading, second reading, maybe even third reading, we continue to see the Old Testament law as cruel, as harsh, backward, barbaric. Certainly not what we would write sitting in the 21st century. But it was absolutely none of those things when it was given. It was justice in a world where there was very little justice, especially for those who were most vulnerable. Widows, orphans, women, children, and foreigners. The world was all dominated, male-dominated. And in almost every culture, women were property. So when God gave the gift of the law, what was it that he was codifying? What was he making sure that they understood? He wanted them to know that they would be different from the countries and the kingdoms around them, different because of their God, different in the way that they worship their God, different in the way that they would conduct business, different in how they treat people, and different in what was deemed valuable. People are valuable. This is groundbreaking when this law is being written. People are to be treated with respect and kindness, care and compassion. People should be protected by their laws and by their rulers. Israel was to be different. Perhaps the most famous biblical phrase about divorce is when God has been quoted as saying, I hate divorce. Why? Why did did he say that? Because he, he was denouncing men who deal treacherously with their wives. I hate divorce was a protective statement for women, not a vindictive one. It should not be used to force women to remain in abusive situations. It's not because it now takes some sort of magical precedence over other things that God hates, like abuse, injustice, manipulation, lying, betrayal. The I hate divorce is in service of protection, not in contradiction to protection. We find it in the New Testament as well. Matthew 5, 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. It says that in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, just in case you wanted to look it up. Verse 32, though, Jesus continues, but I tell you, but, always the but, but I tell you, taking the standard higher, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You you, you can't just walk away from or abandon your wife on a whim as if there are no consequences. He also, in Mark Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 1, Jesus then left that place and he went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan River. Again, crowds of people came to him. And as was his custom, he taught them. 
Verse 2, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Feels like this conversation could be happening in the 21st century. Pharisees only ask Jesus questions like this when they're trying to trick him, when they're trying to trap him, when they're trying to get him to say, but you went against, or you contradict, or you're splitting the crowd. Verse 3, what did Moses command you, he replied. Four, they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Five, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. Six, but at the beginning, the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Genesis 1.27. Verse 7, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Eight, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2.24. Another woman commits adultery against her. Twelve, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So here, again, make this mention because it's Father's Day. Jesus addresses both sexes on this in Mark chapter 10. It's not just uh, for men. But, but I don't think that the focus is on the one serving the papers. It's the why. If you divorce in order to marry someone else, that's adultery. The one breaking the covenant is the one doing the divorcing. Whether with or without papers, the one who breaks the covenant. Yeah, and I'm no scholar, okay? Uh, and, but it seems obvious to me that if a man beats his wife and she divorces him as a result of the beatings, the divorce is not her doing, it's his doing. He broke the covenant. And a lot of teachers seem to think that God hates a legal sending away more than he does the actions that violently drove somebody away. Grammar and language. That's where we're going there, there, there was a diplomat at the United Nations and, uh, uh, who, was told, who told this story. She's listening to the leader of another country who's speaking. There, there's always earpieces or headphones tucked uh, around the ear of the listener, and there's a live translation that's coming where they're being fed um, the native language that they listen to, even though the person speaks another language. National leader is, uh, processes his story, and then he tells a joke um, to sort of make his point um, and let it sink in. But, but there was this uh, a delay in response from the gathering. And, but then the translator's voice came back through uh, saying, the distinguished gentleman has told a joke that does not translate. Please laugh. <laughs> you, heard, you heard of that phrase, lost in translation? Well, that's one of those places. Grammar and language matter greatly. They're not going to cheer you greatly, but they matter greatly. When, they're making, when, you're, when you're making a point, especially when so much will be built upon a word or that word. So consider how the, the, the use of language has changed over time, even within the same language, maybe even within your lifetime, how words that were used regularly when you were a child are used differently now. Same word, no official notification, but the language is just not used in the same way. Now, consider the difficulties for translators who are translating a different culture, a different mindset, a different era, 
and a different language. Just as in English, the same language apparently is shared between Great Britain, the United States, Canada, and other countries, you frequently hear different words used to describe the same thing. Pop, soda, chips, fries, crisps, hood, bonnet, freeway, highway, motorway, truck, semi, lorry, flat, apartment, back bacon, pea meal bacon, Canadian bacon, washroom, restroom, toilet, bathroom. All are used, and depending on where you live, you choose that different word. So it's fun with languages, right? Fun. Bible translations. There are many Bible translations out there, and that might make us ask the question, why? Why so many? How come it's not just the Bible? Well, it's complicated, and so is the task of translation. There are different types of translations for different audiences. What the translators have to decide as they undertake the mission, what's the goal, and who's the audience? Who are we trying to speak towards? So the Bible was originally, or the individual biblical authors wrote thousands of years ago, and they wrote in different languages to what we speak, and they lived in different cultures from where we live. So is the goal of translation to be 100% word-for-word accurate in translation? Because that's next to impossible, since many words have multiple meanings, and sometimes English doesn't have a word that means what the Hebrew, the Greek, or the Aramaic word directly means. Next, you need to consider readability. This is part of the who is the audience. Some translations are very accurate to the words, word-by-word translations, and they are very hard to read in English. They feel very wooden. There's no flow. Then you have to decide if you're going to translate the, are you going to translate the words or are you going to translate the meanings? Do you translate the words or the idiom? Just like we use phrasing all the time that's not accurate, but it is understood, so did people in Bible times. Most people say, hey, you want to hang out later? And people who say that, no one means, do you want to come over, open a window, and dangle out of it? But that's what the words mean. When, 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 you've got, when we say, oh, you've got blood on your hands, we don't usually mean your hands are dripping in blood. It is an idiom that implies guilt. So when the Hebrew translates to English as he covers his garment in violence, it doesn't mean that someone has drawn pictures of violence on his shirt. Some translation work needs to be updated over time to improve uh, clarity and to adjust language based on how we use language currently and to take advantage of the most uh, recent updates of information. So let me give you a quick rundown on some of the well-known translations and let you know how they fit um, and what they focus on. First of all, let's just make this clear right off the top, there is none that can be described as the right one. Okay, some people have a preference, 
but they all have interpretations built in. The translators interpret and they make decisions. That means it's important who the translators are, how many of them there are, and what the translators believe. Three categories that each has a range within them, okay, uh, built, built there. So there's a word-for-word -word translation, and it's got a range. There's a thought-for-thought -thought translation, which has got a range. And there's a paraphrase, which also has a range in what that means. Here's some well-known English translations. Remember, we're just talking English today that have been, have been taken from original languages. And I, and I have to mention that because not all translations pull from original languages. Some pull heavily from previous translations. But maybe the most famous, King James Version, originally published in 1611, perhaps the most well-known English version, especially uh, as it's quoted uh, throughout time in literature, uh, in music and movies when they want to have it, this is normally what they choose. If you want to make it sound like the Bible, then use the KJV, the King James Bible. Uh, for, for, for the these and the thous, um, that's the version, but uh, those in the most recent editions have been updated as well, so that language doesn't even appear there. This is a word-for-word -word translation, and it remains popular primarily, this is interesting, primarily in the United States. The drawback for this one is that the best and most ancient Hebrew and Greek manuscripts have only been discovered after 1850, so they were not used. This translation feels more poetic, it feels ancient, but it also feels somewhat distant from our culture. Another one, the message. I love the message. Uh, it is a paraphrase. Uh, I quite enjoy reading it. Eugene Peterson is the one who did the work, and he took it from original Greek and Hebrew texts, and he tried to bring their feel, their tone, their rhythm, the idiom directly into our contemporary English language. This one is best used for personal reading, not study. The New International Version. This is the one that I use most for personal, uh, and personal study and for preaching kind of study. This is based on a, a form uh, and meaning-based translation types. Both of those work in sort of in an equilibrium. One of the most popular English versions in use around the world today New International Version. So words. Words matter. Today's special word is divorce. And divorce gets extra special attention because everyone seems to know that one verse in the Bible that says, you know what it says, right? You've heard it. That's the one that's the most quoted. It says, God hates divorce, right? You've heard that one before, right? You know where it comes from? Bible, right? Easy. Prophet Malachi, chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Here's some context for you. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because He no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. 14. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. 15. Has not the one God made you? You belong to Him in body and spirit. And what, what does the one God seek? A godly offspring. 
godly children, godly followers. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. 16, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, because the man who divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. Or, if you were to look it up right now, or you might find this. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Why the two readings? We're getting there, all right? Just hang on. First, you really need to ask yourself, though, when applying this verse, am I enabling someone? Frequently men, but not exclusively men. Am I enabling people to deal treacherously? Or am I preventing them from dealing treacherously? Further thought, based on the context here in Malachi, what does God mean by divorce. And I'll tell you, it's the treacherous dealings. God says he's not listening to their prayers because they are betraying their wives. And that, he says, I hate, if you wanted to take it with that translation. Do not constrain, do not force, do not demand that an abused wife or an abused husband must accept what God hates. Do not act as if the divorce is the victim's actions that they take in order to protect themselves. No, the divorce is the treacherous action of the abuser, according to Scripture. And that, the treachery, is what God hates. It's not merely the confession of one's lips but the conformity of one's life that reveals the true conviction of one's faith, the appearance and the aroma of Christ to all that we deal with. Are you uncomfortable yet? My Hebrew is rusty. That's a generous way to say downright poor. Uh, highly dependent on the work of others. But I hate as in God being quoted as saying, I hate divorce, probably not the best translation. We've already seen a second option today that exists in published, well-known Bible uh, versions. It is a third-person singular verb. It's grammar talk, right? Who, who thought that you would be loving that? And you are. You love grammar talk, I can tell, but it's important for where we are right now. So this is more study than it is just uh, explanation, okay? The ESV, which is the English Standard Version, the NIV, New International Version, and CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, all have within them a version of some collection of these words, he or the man who hates and divorces his wife covers his garment with injustice or with violence. That's why I brought up translations. Translations can be tricky. They can be intricate. We're getting to it, okay? The rest of the Bible, though, it makes it pretty clear that God hates abuse. Even the famous section, you know, the six things, seven things that God hates list? You know this list? 
it can really easily be mapped to common marital problems. So Proverbs chapter 6, 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. See if you can hear marital violations in here. 17, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. 18, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil. 19, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Those are all things that we are to avoid, to not do. None of those has the appearance or the aroma of Christ. Those are all things God hates. Now this list is less for you to evaluate those sitting around you and more for your self-inventory, right? But at the same time, you need to be aware and be cautious of what is happening around you. Keeping those thoughts, those things in your mind, consider John 4. Jump into John chapter 4. It is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. You can look it up later today. It's not up here. You're not going to see it. Read through it there. John chapter 4. Jesus meets a woman at the well. They have a conversation. She's a woman and a Samaritan. He's a man and a Jew. Two reasons, four reasons that the culture at that time would frown upon this meeting and this whole conversation. But Jesus shows her that he values her and wants to involve her in his big picture story, not just her moment. He seems to know all about her. He says that she has been married to multiple men and the man that she is currently living with is not her husband. And when we hear that story, we add all kinds of our world onto her world, right? Whenever you've heard that story, has anyone ever looked down on any of the men that she is no longer living with? We have no idea of any of the stories. But there's a, certainly a negative feeling that we have placed on her. At least when I grew up, she was always cast in a negative light. Does she deserve that? When, we t- when we're talking about the woman at the well, there's a significant lesson to pull out here. People who assume she is at fault for all of those have read something into the text. It's just not there. Legally, she could not initiate divorce. She, she could have been a child bride to a much older man who died. She had no personal agency. She had no way to be in charge of it. We have no idea what actually happened in any of her stories. Women don't have a legal standing. Part of that is why it's so important that a husband cares for his wife. She's completely dependent on him. So any betrayal of that care is deeply problematic. Men divorced women by taking them to a public space. Walk with me, honey. Let's go to the market. Let's go to the gate, the area, at the, the, the entrance to the town. And he takes her there, stating his intention, and then he leaves her there. That's it. It's that easy. And for any reason, right, she's got a mole, she's a bad cook, she's got a funny eye, whatever. Leave her. She's just left. She's just abandoned and now destitute. And this is the way God's people were divorcing their wives. As a means of survival, she may have gone to live with a male relative. Jesus does not condemn women whose husbands divorce them. 
So why is it still common to condemn women who have men who abuse them? Is that not as bad as leaving a woman in a public place, shamed and without any resources? Why, why, why do we feel, why, why do so many of us feel it? we need to have a verse to say specifically God hates marriage abuse, abuse within a marriage? Can we just know that? I mean, yes, we can know that, and I think we do know that. God hates the treacherous behavior, not the legal paperwork. But we have for so long simply summarized it down to God hates divorce, so stay with the man who is beating you. Stay with the man who is beating your children because, because God hates divorce. And we're going to give him a pass on the beating. Treacherous behavior breaks the covenant. The covenant of marriage is broken through the treachery, not through the paperwork. So an expanded reading of the God hates divorce verse might be, I hate when men use their positions of power to harm women. And not... I want women to stay trapped in harmful situations as it's so often used. Now, it has been argued uh, and it is now growing in acceptance that the God hates divorce is a mistranslation. A mistranslation, just like the word ecclesia. When we talk about the church, when ecclesia is, is a word that comes more from the Greek, and when it got translated, eventually to English, it came through German. Instead of describing it as a group of people, they, they used the word, um, what? What's the word? I just blanked. It, it means church the building. Kirch, kirch, yeah, kirka. Um, when you, when you have that, this is the church that God has. The translation to English came through a German where it said it's the building which was never the intention. It was a group of people. That's a mistranslation that's been discovered over time. And it makes us uncomfortable because we have this book that we call the Bible, and now there's something in it that we're saying is problematic. So whenever we talk about the Bible not being problematic, we say in its original autographs, in the original version as it was first written, because humans along the way, they do make mistakes. So this is another one of those places. I'm not saying this. This is not my opinion, okay? This is other people, you know, smart people, people who have corduroy jackets with, with the leather patches on their elbows, uh, pipes, you know, smart people. They, they, they are saying this is a mistranslation and certainly an oversimplification of the whole passage. So the Hebrew that, that would work with the construction starts with he hates, he covers, shows that the one who feels the hatred is not God. But the one who is feeling the hatred is the divorcing husband. So to be faithful to the Hebrew, the verse could be rendered if he hates and divorces. In Malachi 2.16, many Bible translations have or had the words, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. These words have been paraphrased uh, in, into that well-known phrase that comes out, God hates divorce. And this is really problematic um, because uh, people around are increasingly now, there are more and more of these victims of domestic abuse. 
And, and that, that phrase is just sort of bandied around. It's like a proverb. It's like a, a helpful saying. It's dropped into sermons casually, magazine articles. It's put in marriage manuals, amplified through Bible studies, um, you know, thrust accusingly at people over cyberspace or over kitchen tables. God hates divorce. And it seems so clear. It seems so easy. It appears to condemn all acts of divorcing without regard of what happened or who the innocent party is. Regardless of the sins involved, divorce is the biggest sin of all. And the Christian victims of domestic abuse have have it carved in stone in their minds and they feel trapped between terrible alternatives. Stay in the marriage and, and suffer the ongoing destruction of ongoing abuse. Or reap condemnation for divorcing their abusive partner. Because God hates divorce. A third alternative that's sometimes offered up to that victim, it's it's almost as bad. It's separate from the abuser, but never divorce. Stay in a limbo, which which still brings uh, wagging fingers and and, and tongue wagging from, from church folks. And it leaves that victim vulnerable to a dangerous reconciliation. you got to forgive, Right? Forgive means it all should go back to the way it was. So it's a dangerous reconciliation if you have an unreformed abuser who's sort of publicly known and they want to have a better public opinion, so they they make an outward show of reformation. I'm trying hard. I'm doing the work. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please take me back. And outwardly, it all sounds fine, and we should do that. Forgiveness is great. We should all forgive, right? But there's no sense that there's been an inward change. Don't get me wrong here, okay? Hear me clearly. I am not for divorce. I'm not here to champion divorce. Don't mishear any of this. Divorce is kind of like an amputation, cutting off your own limb, never to be done lightly, but sometimes it saves lives. Significantly, most people do not realize that Malachi 2.16, that text that's given rise to this, this saying has been this is the mistranslation. The, the correct translation came about, the incorrect translation came about like this. Malachi 2.16, it was written, is he hates, right? The Hebrew denotes third person masculine singular. That's where you get the word he, right? More grammar stuff. Your English teacher is going to be so delighted that you're doing this grammar. It's really important. Here's how it shows up. King James Version had For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. Right? Putting away, that's closer to the actual Hebrew. We translate that word as divorce. But but it's so clear for us, right? So as we go along, we will see that being translated word for word. Not word for word, but thought for thought. So many subsequent translations switch the third person, he, to a first person, I, for no grammatical reason. For example, the 1984 NIV was, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Not a good translation. No longer he, now it is I. And possibly translators uh, thought the switch was okay because it kept the general sense of the King James, translated from a translation, not translating from original language. That God feels the hatred for divorce. They didn't seem to worry that I hate divorce was grammatically inaccurate to the original Hebrew. 
But modern translations are starting to correct this mistake. The construction in Hebrew shows that the one who feels the hatred is not God, but the divorcing husband, right? So to be faithful to the Hebrew, the verse could be rendered as, if he hates, <coughs> if he hates and divorces, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with violence. It's talking about a husband who hates his wife and divorces her because he doesn't like her. Therefore, Malachi 2.16 is not referring to divorce. It's referring to a specific type of divorce for aversion, which could be dubbed hatred divorce. Divorce for hatred is treacherous divorce. If, man, if a man hates his wife and dismisses, he covers his garment with violence. His conduct is reprehensible. He has blood on his hands. He is the guilty one. Since 1868, 16 individuals, Hebrew scholars, have translated the hatred as being what the, the divorcing husband feels rather than what God feels. You want to read more about this? You can read Barbara Roberts' book, Not Under Bondage, Biblical Divorce for Abuse, Adultery, and Desertion. And she's got a list of all the different translations there. The conclusion, simple. It's liberating. God did not say, I hate divorce. God only condemns the divorce which unjustly dismisses a spouse without valid grounds. Examples of divorce without valid grounds might be a man discards his wife for a younger woman. Ever heard that story before? Or when a woman throws off her husband because he doesn't earn enough to keep her in the luxury that she believes she deserves. Or when a mate just says, yeah, we're incompatible. My spouse hasn't done anything wrong. Um, I just don't think we have anything in common. Malachi 2.16 does not condemn all of divorce. It certainly does not condemn the divorce which a person might take out because of the persistent misbehavior of their spouse. It doesn't condemn divorces undertaken because of adultery, abuse, or desertion. Does a word really make a difference? I mean, a word here or there, does it really matter? This, this correct translation of Malachi 2.16 makes a vast difference to victims of abuse who are devoted to the Scriptures. If they know that God does not condemn all divorce, but only treacherous divorce, they will be much better positioned to make biblically informed decisions about their marriages. I'm not promoting divorce. The mistranslation of Malachi 2.16 has generated a load of malarkey. Okay, here's the definition of malarkey. It's a real word. I love it. Uh, it means exaggerated or foolish talk, usually intended to obscure, mislead, deceive, or impress. Nonsense. Bunkum. Empty rhetoric. So much of what regard, surrounds this verse is Malachi malarkey. See what I did there? Uh, we need to stop saying God hates divorce, okay? The saying God hates divorce is unbiblical, it's unjust, and it's unkind when you throw it around. It stigmatizes people who have divorced on valid grounds. If you have never been divorced, like me, like me as I'm not divorced, uh, we probably will not ever grasp how deep this stigma can be. 
It can cause profound and long-lasting guilt and and self-condemnation. It besmirches anyone who divorces on valid biblical grounds, victims of domestic abuse, victims of unjust abandonment, the innocent party in adultery, those who have chosen to divorce porn addicts, child abusers, thieves, murderers, victims of domestic abuse or other violations of the marriage covenant can be trapped in horrible marriages for a whole range of reasons. Let's remove one of those reasons by abandoning the unscriptural chant slogan, God hates divorce. Just throw it out without any further conversation. There are three modern translations just um, that I wanted to show you, Malachi 2.16, that accurately converb, convey the verb hates is third person, not first person. So there's the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, which became the Christian Standard Bible in 2017, called the CSB now, if you want to look it up. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. The New International Version, the NIV, the 2011 version, not the 1984 edition. So it's an update in there. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. The English Standard Version, the ESV, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. And there is a note, there's a star on the word divorces, and if, if you read the note that's in the, the, the footnotes there, it would say, from the Hebrew, who hates and divorces. I think Jesus' own words make it clear that the certificate of divorce isn't what breaks the covenant. It is the immorality. It is the treachery that breaks the covenant. The divorce has happened because of the treachery. The person breaking the covenant is the one who divorces their spouse. If the spouse needs to separate for their own health, their own safety, the legal documents to that effect are not the divorce that God hates, if you want to go back to the God hates divorce language. Now, more important, we are to deal with each other as much as possible with the appearance and the aroma of Christ. That's our guide. That's the goal for us. That is, that, that's the growing way of life for us. We are be to make a verb out of it. We are to be into one-ing. That's our identity. That's our mission. Into one-ing. It's not simply a way to describe us when everything is going well and we are all happy. So much talk of separation today might have caused you to forget or to question what we are really to be all about. Being perfected into one refers most pointedly to us when we are not all happy, when things are not all going swimmingly. It is the call for new direction when you can see things sliding out of control. So I'm going to ask, pray with me as I try to voice my thoughts about this in relationship to God, praying on behalf of you as well. Lord Jesus, continue to draw us together into one. Holy Spirit, 
guide me, guide us into being champions for growing into oneness. Because sometimes I am not feeling like I am getting along all that well with them or with her or with him. Help me to go where I really want to go. Take me to where your heart is. Guide me forward, O great Jehovah. Holy Spirit, lead me into taking next steps and making better decisions so that we can all live with fewer regrets. Show me that place that we are headed, where you are calling us to. Help me to live now like I am in the place that I want to exist all around me, your kingdom. If I don't live like that, how will others be drawn in to create it? May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Be involved in my life. Be involved in the lives of my friends that are with me and who are watching online as we run in earnest pursuit of you, as we try to live in the way that you have called us to live, to create a sense of that your kingdom where you reign, where, where your values are the key values, your values are the laws that we follow. Give us wisdom how to live in the world that we are in right now, how to live with the people that you have placed around us. None of them came just by accident. None of the people that are in my life just appeared against or outside of your will. Knowing that, that these are the people that are placed around me, Help me to live in submission to you, in earnest pursuit of you, doing my best to have the appearance of Jesus and the aroma of Jesus in and amongst them. As I am a priest that points to Jesus, give me wisdom to live in this world that my finger will be able to point accurately in the direction of you, pull my eyes up out of the muck and the mire, the, the, the things that are all around me that, that discourage and disappoint, put my eyes firmly on you, that I will be able to see where you're going so that I can do as you say. Help me to see as you see so that I can do as you say. And for my friends, the same thing. It's a complex world that we live in, and yet we want to bring a simplicity of Jesus' focus into that complexity. This week, show up for us as we have to weigh different scenarios. We have to figure out how to do, how to relate, how to speak, what we choose to say, how we choose to say it. Be our vision. Be our guide. Continue to save us when we stumble and fall. And draw people to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.